Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Over the next four to six weeks, I'm going to be talking with a few different guests about aspects of building democracy at the local level. Often, we feel powerless working for a variety of issues in the face of the immensity of the task of trying to change the trajectory of a nation of 300 million people. Sometimes, we ignore the truth that many of the decisions that most significantly affect our lives are not made in Washington, D.C., not made at the state capital, but are made locally in our cities, our villages, our towns, or in our schools. About a month from now, I'll be talking with an author who's looked at a political movement that aims to alter the course of our country, not for the good, in my view, but by buying local and state elections. Fortunately, there are some really wonderful folks working for the healing of the world at the local level, and one of them joins us today in person. Joe Luganbill is an example of the possibilities most people deny, and of the inspirational power of youth. Joe, at the age of 22, has already been serving on our city's school board for a couple of years, and this past year he created the Luganbill Children's Foundation to provide support for struggling kids who fall through the cracks of our safety net. Support for homeless kids, for example, or for foster kids who are aging out of foster homes but with no transitional support. Joe Luganbill joins me in person right here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Joe, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to get to know you. I mean, I I know you were at the fundraiser that we had last fall for Northern Spirit Radio, and there's been a couple people on the board who've been talking about you. It's kind of a a rising light, a special person. Your age is 22, right? Yes. It's very significant that we have some very, I think, gifted people, gifted and motivated people in the Chippewa Valley who are doing things that many of us aspire to be able to do by the time we're 70. You're already on the school board for a while now. Could you talk about how you ended up on the school board of all things before you're 22? Well, both of my parents are educators. And so, you know, from the time that I was in diapers, I was in the public schools. So I really grew up in our school district in every way. From a very young age, I've known that I've wanted to give back and be a helper in whatever way I can. And so the opportunity came up. A couple people asked me, and it didn't take a lot of arm twisting for me to say, yeah, I'd I'd be interested in serving in that way. So I've really enjoyed it. We've been able to make some pretty great changes and strives towards making our school district a more equitable and supportive environment for all students and families. So I'm optimistic about that. 
And when you say, Joe, that you knew you wanted to grow up being willing to give back, I mean, are you talking about out on the playground when you were 10 years old, you were saying, I want to be able to give back. I mean, I'm just having a little bit of disjuncture with youth where, uh, you know, callow youth is a phrase that I don't even know what it really means. But I have a suspicion that in some ways you were not completely in step with all of your classmates. Well, <laughs> you know, I guess the best example that I think about quite a bit is when I was 10 years old and I was asked by my teacher and principal, they pulled me out in the hallway and they asked me if I'd be willing to be a buddy for a kindergarten student who had Down syndrome and she had a hard time fitting in, they were saying, and just needed somebody to read with her and spend time with her for, I think it was 25 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day. And so... I took part in that. I did that every day. And while it was technically to be there for her and to help her, I got so much joy out of doing it. I have reflected on that experience a lot more recently, just thinking about what an impact that made in my head at that time. That was really my first opportunity to be a helper in a substantial way. It felt so good to be a helper and just to see the difference that it made for her and also the difference that it made for me and that connection that we were able to make and the bond that we were able to share that we wouldn't have otherwise. I think about Haley a lot and now through a number of my different hats, I get to help advocate for people like Haley, people who are sometimes forgotten or ignored or don't have as loud of a voice as others, and people who deserve to have people who care about them and people who help them. So I had the benefit of an incredible upbringing, wonderful parents, both teachers who instilled those values in me and in my siblings, not by necessarily telling us, but by showing us, and also by giving us opportunities to be helpers in the community you know, going on mission trips and doing volunteer work in the community and, and doing things like, you know, being a buddy to somebody at school. You say you've got siblings. Are they all like you? I mean, is this really a family culture that you're coming out of? I also know that you were raised in Lutheran Church, even though you're attending Unity now. When you say mission trips, I think church, and so I think Lutheran. I don't even know if Unity has mission trips. Yeah, that was back in early high school that we went on those mission trip opportunities through the Lutheran Church. There was a, at the time, a Living Water Lutheran Church in Cameron, Wisconsin, was just getting started opening up their church. So it was unlike some of the stale experiences I had had growing up, where everything was very well established. Most of the folks in leadership were my grandparents' age. I didn't really have opportunities to be with peers and experience things in that way. And so this was a great opportunity for us because we were connected with this church in Cameron, and they went to Montana, to Wolf Point, Montana, to an Indian reservation there. We had the opportunity to do, it was a Bible school, but also kind of a day camp type thing during the week. And then in the evenings, we would sometimes do service projects or we would do more touristy things in the town and go visit different sites and learn about different things that were facing the community, different challenges. But again, that was another experience where I had an opportunity to pretty closely connect with a very small child who came to the camp, instantly connected with me. He was a young boy who had suffered from PTSD 
and he had fetal alcohol syndrome, and he had hydrocephalus, uh, water on the brain. So having that experience is, is another one that I think about a lot. But those are experiences that my parents put in front of me, you know, and so certainly many people do not have parents like that or people like that to put stuff in front of them. And so I feel so grateful for that all the time. I have three younger siblings who all are very, we're all very different, but we all want to go into some sort of a line of work where we are helping. And I think that's a tribute to my parents, really. My younger sister, Anissa, is just got in the School of Education here at UW-Eau Claire. My little sister, Jenna, is a junior in high school, and she's taking night classes at the Tech. She wants to go into the medical field. And my little brother, Zach, wants to go into music and maybe be a music teacher. Now, he's about to turn 13, so his ideas, I hope that they still change. <laughs> but it's it's promising to see that all of my younger siblings, too, they want to give back in, in different ways. This is going somewhere, by the way, folks. I'm I'm not just wandering with Joe, which I really do appreciate all of the story that Joe Lucanville brings to Spirit in Action today. We're walking along a path because I want to lead you up to get some view of this really special person that Joe is. You've mentioned your parents, their teachers. What kind of teachers, what level? I'm thinking there's something special there I need to find out about. Uh, well, both of my parents are music teachers, first and foremost. They both grew up here in Eau Claire. They both went to UW-Eau Claire. They actually met in the DeLong Band. But my dad, is he's a band director in the school district here. He teaches at DeLong Middle School. And he's also in the past taught high school band, jazz band. He taught uh, adaptive music at the middle school level with students with special needs. He taught orchestra. So... And then my mom, she teaches piano lessons, and then she does after-school lessons in various schools throughout the district. She teaches there as well. So there's some portion of music which must be part of your life. Is music a thing that happens at home a lot? Have you had part in making music as well? Or maybe your parents set too high of a standard. Sometimes it's pretty daunting to join in when your parents are that developed. Yeah, well, I was too stubborn to take piano lessons, that's for sure, but I have played in concert band, jazz band. I play trumpet. That's my instrument. And I sing. So I've had the opportunity to do some of that now out in the community, but not as much. But I certainly find that the arts just kind of unlock a little part of your brain that you otherwise wouldn't have maybe been able to use. And kind of that spark of creativity, that ability to innovate in very unique ways. I guess one example for me would be yeah, I've been involved in jazz and learning how to improvise with my trumpet and doing solos in jazz, it unlocks a piece of your brain that you can use in different settings and you can improvise in other ways, maybe not musically, but in your communication with others and, and having that ability on your feet to react to situations and to plan for situations. So it's, it certainly has so many benefits. So walking along your path, and this is leading up to the Luganville Children's Foundation, at a certain point, graduate from North High School here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and you decide to go on to some kind of additional education. Tell us about what you chose and why you chose it. Well, I've had a very interesting path after high school. So for me, it uh, has been the Chippewa Valley Technical College for business management. And actually in the fall, I'm going to be going back to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, which I'm really excited to do. 
I don't think that after high school I was necessarily ready to do that yet and to plunge into that. And so now I'm, I feel very ready to do that. And I think that's an important piece and one that I take with me in my roles in educational leadership now is making sure that every young person doesn't feel like they are put in a box and they have that ability to direct the course of their education, of their career, of their life and do it in the way and in the pace and at the time that is right for them. So I've tried to broaden my perspectives, not only through my education, but also just through my work on the ground. You know, currently and most recently, it's been with the county here in Eau Claire, working through the Strengthening Families program, working with children and families, working with folks who have sometimes been neglected or forgotten in our society and helping them with navigating life and and more than anything, walking with them in finding solutions to the various challenges that they're facing, whether it's housing or a job or getting the support and mentoring that they need to be a successful parent. Since high school, I've really just tried to dig in to the things that I'm interested in and contribute in the ways I can. You know, you mentioned, Joe, the Strengthening Families program, but I'm having a little bit of, uh, you know, again, there's a bridge between these, but I'm not quite seeing it. Business administration and strengthening families program, I would have thought a social work program would have been more natural of a lead in. How do you get to the strengthening families program from your business administration? That's a good point. Good question. Before taking that position, I did have to do a caseworker certification to be a child welfare worker through the state. And I had to do that through a training program through UW-Madison and child welfare training. I guess that in terms of the applicability of knowing how to navigate business and the various ways that you communicate to folks and how you work with clients, a lot of it applies to work with marginalized communities. And actually, in some ways, I use it now more than ever in my work in a nonprofit that I've founded and in working to administer and coordinate programs that fill gaps and meet needs and doing the proper analysis that you need to do and planning that you need to do to get to a point where you are packaging a really great product in the form of a program that can be in your community and supporting people. I have seen it apply in those ways, I guess. There's still a little piece. So you you did have a certification program that you had to do with respect to the state before you started working with Strengthening Families program. For all I know, by taking a business administration program, you were figuring you were going to be running the next tech startup business that went around. Was that what business administration was about, or was that specific skills that you were going to envision using somewhere along the way? I think the latter, acquiring some specific skills. A lot of my current work has been a mix of that, but also just working on the ground with people, with families, with children, with agencies. That's really been the the most valuable education, I guess, up until this point. Right prior to my work with the county and being elected to the school board and all of the Eau Claire-centric work, I was working with migrant families as well. In doing that, I was throughout multiple counties, but doing a lot of the similar work that I've done in Eau Claire. But so I've, I've really just, I guess the phrase you learn by doing is very relevant when you're talking about working with families because no one family is the same. 
and no one challenges the same, but understanding the themes and the patterns and the commonalities between what folks are facing. So, you know, in the work with migrant families, it was sometimes visiting the migrant labor camps and seeing what folks were needing. Fast forward to working in Eau Claire, and it's been a lot more of folks who they just can't seem to get ahead. And it might be because of the economy or because of their wage or the work that they're doing and their pay rate. It might be because of a of something that's more debilitating. Maybe it's a substance abuse or mental health issue. But really what I found as the common link between all of the different people that I've been able to interact with is they're all seeing a poverty of some kind. And I really think kind of a poverty of the heart more than anything because a lot of these folks they feel forgotten, and it shows. And why shouldn't they, right? Because often they've been let down by so many people. You know, in the case of a young person I might work with, why would they want to trust me? Because they've been let down by every other adult in their life. But it's recognizing some of those common linkages and being there for that person. And that's not really something that you can tangibly study, I don't think, until you actually do it. But having that ability to receive somebody completely for who they are, for what they're facing, just like a mother would receive a child or a hospital would receive a patient or a hotel would receive a guest, having that ability to connect with people at a level where you are receiving them for who they are and taking it from there. I think that's probably the most important lesson I've learned in the work. And I think it's the most important component of the work is being able to take people for who they are, receive them for who they are, be there for them, be there with them. I didn't know about that piece about the migrant families. And so it's like, oh, how does he get there? And you're, you're just 22. And so I'm trying to step back and realize I'm beginning to think that the idea of taking the technical college degree, a two-year degree, frees up a lot of your time to find out what you really want to do. I don't know how many people finish a four-year degree and then they're just starting to figure out what they want to do, often making a severe course correction after college. It sounds to me like two years, you gain some skills and now you go out in the world and try it for a while. I'm just, again, as I understand that you have been the youngest person on the school board for Eau Claire in its history. Is that accurate? And how old were you when you actually got elected? I was elected when I was 20 to the school board. So it was a few months before my 21st birthday that I got sworn in. And yeah, I'm the youngest elected official in the history of Eau Claire. That is something that being a young elected official sometimes there's the insinuation that maybe if you are a young elected official, you have to work twice as hard to be taken half as seriously. I haven't necessarily experienced that. I've found people, most people that I interact with and work with through that role, to be very receptive to what I have to say, mainly because you know, a school board is in the business of young people, in the business of educating the future. And I'm someone who is a very recent product of the public schools. So I think people who have been my colleagues have taken that into account and have respected that, that that's one of the perspectives that I bring among others, just as I respect the perspectives that they bring. So it's been a really interesting position up until now. I mean, I didn't start doing this work when I graduated from high school. I started doing it when I was a child in elementary school, you know, and when I mean, I'd been working in some form or another since I was 12, 13 years old. And when I was 
14, I got an internship with Senator Cole's office in Eau Claire and rode my bike after school to work in the office there. They had to rewrite some rules somewhere so that I could be an intern because they'd never had anyone who was underage interning in that office. But I guess I've just tried to fill in where I feel that I'm needed. That doesn't always mean that's where I'm wanted, but I, you know, if there isn't a seat for me, I've usually been one to bring a folding chair, <laughs> symbolically usually. Never literally? <laughs> I'm trying to think of an experience, maybe like once or twice. <laughs> but no, I think one thing that I had going for me when I ran for the board was I put in a lot of time in this community through serving on boards and volunteer work, and both of my parents are from here, so, you know... I was a known entity, even if I wasn't that old yet. And so people have at least given me the benefit of the doubt usually, which I appreciate. So already in when you're 14, you're working in a U.S. Senator's office here. You're clearly going in some kind of direction that, again, I just think you're leading the pack in some way. And that's a good thing to have that kind of insight does this mean that you didn't go skateboarding or playing tetherball or do whatever it is? Maybe you were in soccer. I mean, does this mean that your focus was just something different? Maybe it's when you're playing trumpet that it just blows all these other ideas out of your mind. Well, you know, I, I guess I usually have had different priorities than other people my age, and that still rings true. It makes cultivating the people that you want to spend your time with, the friends, is sometimes interesting to navigate. But no, I, I mean, I guess I've always kind of had different priorities. I mean, I did regular young person things, regular kid things, but I did theater and music and stuff like that. But I also did a lot of things out in the community, volunteering, more political things, volunteering, interning for candidates, for offices. I guess it's just kind of how I've been wired. As I was saying, I really don't know much about school boards. I mean, I voted. But you got on the school board when you're 20, the youngest elected official. What do you do on the school board? I know that Joe Luganbill wants to make a positive difference in this world, and that's the kind of person I want to have on this program. What kind of things actually have you been doing in these past two years? Well, we've been pretty busy. When I first was elected, I thankfully got appointed to the policy committee for the school district, the policy and governance committee and quickly began to propose and write new policies for the district or policy reforms to the way we do business and the way we work with youth and work with families, work with staff. So we've passed a number of policy changes from reforming our discipline practices, making it more progressive and more based on positive behavioral interventions. We reformed some of our pieces of our non-discrimination policy to accommodate transgender students which was one that had a lot of public debate about it. You know, and more recently, we have coming in the next few months a new sustainability policy. Just a lot of a lot of great changes to the way we do business. Not that we have ever been a bad district, but we can always do more and we can always do better. And so I've kind of viewed my role to kind of be somebody that on that board sometimes has to spearhead things and write policies and propose them and get them through the board and help reform the district. And that's the legacy I want to leave the board. And that's what I want to have contributed as best I can is policies and procedures and ways of doing business that are inclusive and are supportive of all students and all families and make our district one that is a great district to learn in and work in. And it already is in so many wonderful ways, and it's just strengthening it. So I've had the benefit of 
serving with board members who are very forward-thinking and positive and, and focused on students and student achievement. And I've had the benefit of, you know, we've got 1,400 staff who are top shelf. We're the eighth largest district in the state, yet we don't really feel like it. We feel like a very tightly woven district in a very connected district in many ways, and, and that's good. And so improving that culture, building on that, has been a real joy. But there's still a lot more work to do on the board, and so I'll continue as long as the voters will have me, whether it's on this board or on other levels, I suppose, but just giving back as best I can and trying to bridge gaps and give a voice through policy and through systemic reforms, especially to students who've otherwise been marginalized. You know, we're looking at changing some things about our homeless policy, how we work with homeless students, students in foster care. We just passed a resolution on support for immigrant students, regardless of their immigration status, and changing some things and clarifying some things there. We developed a new protocol to address human trafficking in the schools and make sure folks are trained. So it's just making sure that we're helping our most vulnerable students especially and making sure that they don't have to live in any sort of shadow, whether that is poverty or discrimination or what have you. So I kind of view that as my role. I love hearing about all of this, Joe. It's really amazing. I mean, in the newspapers, what you see is that San Francisco is a sanctuary city. They've declared it. But I have a sense that with Joe Luganville's help and all the other good people on the school board, that we maybe have a sanctuary school going on here in Eau Claire. And people don't think of that. And I imagine it's been even a little bit more challenging since uh, Scott Walker and the Republican Party have had control of the state. They've changed the way that financing happens with respect to the schools. And I'm imagining that that's made it more of an uphill battle to try and bring in new programs. You know, you talked about your parents both being in music education in the schools, uh, yourself having the connection with music, and yet those are the things that usually get cut from programs, and they're often what keep people in school when everything else seems boring to them. Has there been any particular struggle going on? I, I may be totally misreading how the state affects what's happening locally, but I had the suspicion that that's been work that you've had to You've had to offset some loss of power, loss of flexibility. Right. Well, you know, I think that's an accurate assessment. We do have folks in Madison who want to micromanage what school districts can and cannot do. It's always good to have accountability. But sometimes, you know, I, I know one thing that they're working on right now is limiting when school districts can go to referendum which is really one of our only tools that we have right now to address the shortage of funds provided by the state and the out-of-date and inequitable school funding system that we have. And, you know, it, school funding and, and money in general, money is something that you're going to fight about whether you have it or don't have it, right? But just systemically, we have seen a incredible disinvestment in our public schools in this state. We've seen uh, over a billion dollars that has been directed away from public schools since our current governor took office. And that money has ended up in many other different places, including private voucher programs to religious and private educational institutions that often do not have any sort of accountability measures and are in the most basic of ways that they're not accountable to taxpayers like public schools are. They have, do not have a publicly elected school board. They do not have open meeting minutes. 
They don't have to have a transparent budget that's available to the public. So it's a big concern for us right now in public education is making sure that the state is recognizing the role that we play and how important it is to invest in us. You know, since 1993, there has been no change to the revenue caps in the state that were placed on public schools. They were placed there in 1993 to hold the line on local property taxes because some school boards were levying to a point where local communities were feeling the impact and and not happy about it. And so Governor Thompson and the legislature at the time imposed those revenue caps. What that did was it froze everybody, every single public school district in the state. They were frozen in time, basically. So we were frozen at a relatively fiscally conservative level. And in fact, to point to maybe why that was, we in in our local community in that time period were not even recovering yet from the closing of Uniroyal. And the local economy had taken just an incredible hit. So we were frozen at a very conservative level. That's what we had spent that year before, the year prior. So that's what the state froze us in at. And then you look just a few hours away to La Crosse, they were spending much higher. And so over the course of the years from 1993 until now, La Crosse had literally had hundreds of million dollars more than we've had through the same funding system just because of how we were inequitably capped. So that's something that we do grapple with. At the end of the day, what's most important to me is that we're providing every single student a great, high-quality public education and that they have the same access to opportunities as a kid in La Crosse does or a kid in northern Wisconsin or a kid in Milwaukee or Madison. You know, we need to make sure that every kid in this state, no matter what their zip code, they've got a shot. And that's not currently happening under the current funding system. Folks will hear about there is a proposed budget that would increase money to public schools by $200 per pupil. That's what's called categorical aid. So if that does happen, and that's a big if, it still makes no change to the funding formula. It's a one-time increase. So it's like receiving a bonus but still not having had a raise since 1993. So... At the end of the day, what we need is a raise. We don't need a bonus. We need a systemic raise, and we need to relook at how we fund public schools. A lot has changed since 1993. If what everyone is saying is true and that we're open for business and we have all this money, where's it going? And if the answer is that it's going to tax cuts or breaks to large companies and wealthy people, that's not a good enough answer for me. Because at the end of the day, public schools in this state are the great equalizer. That's how they're outlined in our Constitution in Wisconsin, that we have a free and appropriate public education for all, and that no matter what your income or background, you've got a shot. So that's what's on the line, and that's what we have to protect. Folks, we're talking today with Joe Luganbill. He will be talking very shortly about Luganbill Children's Foundation, which is a really important innovation, something that we've needed here local in the Chippewa Valley of Wisconsin. I'm assuming this topic and these topics are important to you because I'm going to have a guest uh, in next month for Spirit in Action who deals with the fact that there has been a systemic effort to control state legislatures, to control on the ground the small, not, not the national offices, the Senate and House, 
to change our country from the grassroots up. Joe Luganville, fortunately, is changing from the grassroots up in a very positive direction, I'm thinking. So we're taking a look at how you can make those kind of changes in your community, wherever you are. If you're listening over in Washington State or Massachusetts or Colorado, Oklahoma, Arizona, California, any of the places where this program is broadcast, you can make those changes locally that can make such an impact upon our youth and, therefore, our country. So again, we're speaking with Joe Lukenbill today for Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you find us at northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find over 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find connections to our guests. So when you want to get to luganbillkids.org and you have no idea how to spell Luganbill, just come to NorthernSpiritRadio.org. You'll find out. You can connect with all of our guests of the last 12 years via the site. There's also a place to post comments, and we really, truly value two-way communication. So you've listened to this program. You've got some ideas. Please come and post your comments on Northern Spirit Radio. Let us know what you're thinking. There's also a place to donate, and we are 100% full-time funded by your donations, not by government and not by corporations, but because you, the listener, value this Kind of program. So please donate when you come. Even more important, though, I would say is to support your local media, in particular your local community radio stations. We are fortunate to have WHYS here in Eau Claire, but there's beautiful stations all across the nation who are giving a strong local voice, making our community strong by raising up the voices of those doing the good work in our communities. So please remember to start by supporting your local community media and your local community radio stations. Again, Joe Lukenbill is here, and I'm going to be talking just a moment about Lukenbill Children's Foundation. The website you might want to track down is org. So let's jump right to that topic, Joe, because it's such an important thing you're doing. So you're 22 and a half years old. You've got a foundation that's addressing a need that I think has been largely ignored. Could you talk to us about what led to Luganville Children's Foundation and what exactly you're doing to help out America at the grassroots? The main gap that I've seen is how we have systemically allowed children and youth to fall through the cracks in our local community, in our region. And so that's really what I'm seeking to address through the foundation. Just taking a quick snapshot of the local community in terms of the services that we don't have, Oakler has no sort of respite house to be a short-term shelter for homeless children who are unaccompanied. Oakler has no transitional living program for homeless teenagers or youth aging out of the foster system. And it has no independent living programs for homeless teens or young adults. And those are three very large gaps. Because currently, and as one example, when a young person ages out of the foster system with no family, usually no bank account, generally no driver's license, they have nowhere to go. They have no family. If they have friends, they don't always have the right ones. And they don't have any sort of support out there. And so... These youth are either on somebody's couch, or they're homeless, or they're in an even more dangerous situation. A high number of homeless youth are at risk for being sexually trafficked, for being otherwise victimized, abused, and these are really hard realities for people to talk about. And so when I'm out in the community talking about them, sometimes people kind of look down, or they shake their head, or they're uncomfortable. 
What has happened is because we have no youth shelter in Eau Claire, we have no place for them to go, we have nothing in this community that is embracing and supportive of them, what that means is they fall through the cracks and they end up in these just horrendous situations. I have the opportunity to interact with them. I try to go out and talk with them and find them where they're at and chat about what they're up to, what they need. And so often I hear that they just are, not only are they homeless, but they're placeless in our society. There's really no central place for them in the area. And so that's what I'm seeking to create. And the name of our project is the Smile House. And what Smile stands for is support system, mentoring, independent living, and education. What the Smile House will seek to do is is be that place for youth, a central location right downtown. We have a pending donation of a house. And so what we're going to seek to do is open it up and have it be a place with obviously living accommodations, but also built-in supports, you know, financial education, partnership with the local technical college and university, partnership with job training organizations to help get these youth to a better place. And I kind of use the argument of, would folks rather spend $800,000 or $80,000 on a young person's life? And really, I'd almost argue that there's no amount too high to spend on a young person, but that's just me. But truly, when you think about this kind of a program, this is an intensive way to support youth, get them to a better place, and give them the ability, give them the tools that they need to be independent, to be successful, and to live their dreams. So that's really what we're seeking to do here. I think, Joe, you probably want to fill in a little bit about that 800000 versus 80000 I think I know what you're addressing there because a lot of people think, well, we don't have to do anything about it. But then those programs snowball. And if someone ends up in prison for 10 years, you end up spending a lot of money on those. And if you had only just leveraged uh, a little bit earlier on, in other words, penny wise, pound foolish is something in our system seems to be getting even worse at. Exactly. You're exactly right. What we're seeking to do is be proactive here. In my opinion, a childhood is the most precious commodity in our country. It's the most precious natural resource that we have. We are, in many ways, selling people short. We're selling lives short, and it is costing us so many things. I think about the opportunity cost. I think about all of the young people that I know who are experiencing homelessness. I think about the trajectory of their life. And if they just had the support that they needed, how much they could contribute to our society and our world. And how, even in our little corner of the world here in the Chippewa Valley, how they could make a positive impact. We're missing out on all of that. And by being so short-sighted and by not having any services here, we are going to spend more later on. And really, what a waste. What a sad waste that we're not able to support young people early and give them what they need early so that they can live a great life. I've had the benefit, as we've talked about, of having a wonderful family, a wonderful childhood. I mean, I have no complaints about my childhood, which is, I think, more rare often than not. But what about that time on Christmas when you were 15 when you didn't get what you asked for? <laughs> First world problems. <laughs> and truly, you know, my upbringing, we didn't have everything in the world, but I had my parents two people that would do anything for me and still would. And what a gift to have that. 
And every single young person deserves to have a person in their corner. They deserve to have a community that is embracing and supportive, a village that is embracing and supportive, no matter how big or small that village is. Every young person deserves that. I guess it's it's personal for me now because I can put a face to the problem. You know, when I talk about youth homelessness, I'm not just talking about the statistics. I'm talking about the stories that I know, the youth, the young adults, the young people that I know, that I've worked with, that I've interacted with, who feel hopeless. And they have that poverty of the heart because everyone's let them down and they have nowhere to turn. So that's that's how I connect it. And that's, you know, now it's personal for me because I have these connections and the face to the issue. You know, I'd love it, Joe, if you could provide a little bit more of the face for us. Because, you know, we live in middle America. This is the Midwest, for God's sake. I mean, everything's fine and, you know, we're doing okay. And uh, besides that, there's a little bit of stiff upper lip, too, that happens. You don't talk about problems. So, you know, you talk about homeless people. Homeless people in Wisconsin, I mean, in winter, you're guaranteed to freeze your butt off, but yet there are homeless people here, including kids and sometimes unaccompanied kids. Now, I actually probably know more about these things than the average person. I come from a family of 12 kids, and about half of the kids in our family, there was a problem with them and my stepmother, and they ran away from home. The One of them definitively left home by the time she was 13. So she was actually living free range, if you will, after the age of 13. So I have some idea about this, but could you put some face, put some flesh to the bones that you've outlined here about, about traffic, about homelessness? What's really happening? Well, one example is a young woman that I have been connected with for several years now. Her name is Paige. She came out to her dad right around the time that she was graduating from high school. And she was kicked out of the house. She became homeless. She lived on a couch at a a house of somebody who was, she shouldn't have been anywhere near them, but she had nowhere else to go. This person was available. They were there. There were a lot of people in and out of this house. And she was raped. And ended up living under a bridge in Eau Claire, a bridge I drive drive over, and she had nowhere to go, really. At the time that she, grad- that the- she was kicked out, she was 17, so she wasn't eligible for a lot of services and actually technically wouldn't be eligible for many in the area, and so she was placeless. Other than relying on CD people to house her, she had nothing. She did have a car, so she slept in that car for... I don't know how long uh, she takes showers at the Y. I mean, that's just one face. But I know her story and the heartbreaking truth that she simply had nowhere to go. And what an asinine thing that we wouldn't have something for young people who are homeless and facing these situations. And, you know, especially because she identifies as LGBTQ, it brings up the point that while 7% of the general population is LGBTQ, roughly 40% of homeless teens are LGBTQ. So when we talk about these issues, there are so many intersections, really, and that's one of them. Hers is one of many stories that I've been a part of, not just knowing, but have been a part of. You know, more recently, I have a... He's going to be graduating from high school next year and does not know what he's going to be doing. He doesn't know where he's going to go. He's in foster care, will be aging out. He's in the process of aging out right now. 
aging out of the system is basically just when a, a young person becomes of legal age and they age out. And so he is going to be losing any and all of the support that he's had. He has no relatives in this direct area, but he's resourceful. And he called the office line for the Children's Foundation. And he had heard about the Smile House. And he asked me, when is the Smile House opening? You know? And I said, I hope soon. I will call you. I'll tell you when. I'll let you know. You know? And I have so many young people who I wish I could put them in a box sometimes, selfishly, and not have to worry. But that's not the way I'm hardwired. That's not the way I am. And so I take them with me everywhere I go. And... In many ways, I have kind of a one-track mind right now. It's all I talk about is the poverty and the challenges that these youth are facing. Because in its 160-year existence, Eau Claire's never had anything for them. And to me, it's shameful. It's really nothing anyone can, any one person can feel guilty about. But it is something that we should feel empowered by. To know that, that should light a fire under all of us to say, we've got to do something. Let's do it especially in this time when things are so divided, let's get together on this. Let's start this together. What, Whatever your background is, whatever you bring to the table, let's start this place for youth and make sure that they're not falling through the cracks. I, I hope this isn't inappropriate, but I think I want to give you a little advice, and it's probably advice you've already given yourself. Smile House, I do not think, should have big smiley faces all over it to show it. I, I have a feeling that'll drive away teens. So just, I'm cautioning you, don't go there with big smiley faces all over everything. You hadn't considered that, had you? No. The name Smile House came from a quote from Mother Teresa, Peace Begins with a Smile. To me, the start of one's life is the most important. And you think about all the challenges and issues that adults face, and what if we could just provide them with that smile and with that support as a young person? So that's why I've named it what I've named it. It is that acronym. But, I mean, recognizing that for a lot of young people, they're not in a joyful time when they're coming there. They're not going to be in a joyful time when they're coming there. But we can help provide them with that, with those opportunities. So in that sense, it's kind of like a solemn joy. It really It's kind of a weird way to describe it. But it's such an incredible opportunity but it's one that can't be taken lightly. But it's it's just such a gift to be able to help people in that way. Maybe you're saying instead of a dumb smiley icon, it's more a beatific smile. It's something filled with compassion, filled with inclusion, which is something we really need. You know, I could ask you about other examples. I mean, people don't believe that trafficking happens in our small towns. But I actually kind of act as a counselor for someone a mother and daughter who needed some in-between to sort out what to do about where the girl was being taken. So I, I've actually had some things drop in my lap, and not that I'm particularly trained for these things. I'm trained as a computer programmer, consultant, more and physics teacher, and speech communications. But, you know, I so appreciate that you're cultivating the gifts in this direction, I'm still not sure I have the full outlines of what the Luganville Children's Foundation is about. I know that Joe Luganville's connected with it. I know that there's Smile House coming out of it. When did you incorporate, I assume as a 501c3, and what are the wider structures, what are the visions for the organization as a whole? 
Well, there are a number of programs outlined on our website, luganbillkids.org. Everything really got started for me when I was at the United Nations this last fall. I was very inspired to see the other younger people who were there in the same role I was in. Many of them had, in their respective countries and communities, they had uh, organizations that they had started to fill societal gaps and to make a change. And it kind of struck me to think, you know, wow, I've spent all my time so far navigating current systems. And I think I'm relatively good at it, but I thought, what an incredible thing if I could start a new organization that can just hit on the ground floor level, work on filling these gaps. And without all of the bureaucracy that would be in an existing organization and start it with the mindset of, we're going to get these things done for youth and be an action-based group. And so there are various programs of the foundation. Kind of the flagship program is the Smile House. Down the road with that, I'd, I'd like to connect it to an apartment program where we, and it'll go one of two ways depending on the fundraising. We're either going to be working with landlords on creating some options for youth, affordable options, housing options. And then the other option would be for us to actually ourselves have an apartment program that we would run an apartment building. And that's that would be much more desirable for us, but it's just going to come down to what our budget is looking like with that. But our real flagship is the Smile House, because to me it seems like the most pressing gap when we look at youth homelessness just in this region alone right now, if, even if you look specifically at youth aging out of the system, there are about 70. And so that's just one specific area that we would look to serve. You know, there are homeless teens in all sorts of other situations, but just that specifically, about 70. And there's no way we ourselves will be able to accommodate that with one building, but we can sure as heck start. I think that we can help move things in the right direction and as time goes on and as capacity expands, we'll want to grow. And really, at the end of the day, the, the foundation's mission and goal is to ensure that every single child in the Chippewa Valley grows up in a safe, kind, and loving community in every way. I have a hunch that the work of the foundation will never be done long beyond when there are no Lugan bills left. <laughs> I have a hunch that the work will need to continue to ensure that that, that is the reality but it, it brings me a lot of joy to to see the kind of response I've been getting with this work. We have a lot of people who've stepped up to be committee members with our various projects, board members with the foundation, and folks who've said, come talk to us about this. We want to donate or we want to support you in other ways. And that's, you know, that's what we need. I won't be able to do it alone. The existing committee members won't be able to do it alone. To fill these gaps, it will require a community-wide effort. Kind of it comes back to the whole idea of it takes a village. It truly does with this work. And we aren't necessarily creating it from scratch because there are great programs out there that serve homeless youth. But in Eau Claire's case, we are creating it from scratch because there's nothing else here. And we are a distinct community with its own challenges and its own culture and just who we are as Eau Claire. So we have that to reckon with, that we are basically on the ground floor developing this program. But at least we have made some connections with other agencies, other organizations in Wisconsin and in other states who have done similar type work to address this challenge. And that's been really helpful, too. So, folks, you've been hearing about the Luganville Children's Foundation. LuganvilleKids.org is the website. I'm going to spell it one time. Luganville. L-U-G-I-N. 
B-I-L-L, luganbillkids.org. You can find a link on nordenspiritradio.org, and almost no one misspells Northern Spirit Radio, so we're pretty good shape. Again, we've been speaking with Joe Lukenbill, founder of Lukenbill Children's Foundation, and he's the youngest elected official in the city of Eau Claire, which is quite an amazing feat to rise to that and be making such important differences. By the time he's just 22, I can't imagine when he reaches my age of 62 how the world's going to be transformed. He said it takes a village. In fact, I feel like there's a village of effort and compassion that's coming here to us, to our community, through Joe Lukenbill. So I want to thank you for all of your work leading up through the end of high school and the work that you've done since, school, board, Luganville Children's Foundation, and so many other areas where I know you're making a difference. And there's one last thing that I want to ask you about. I understand you've got a book on the way. I do. It's, it's one of my favorite therapeutic things to do is write stories. And so I decided, well, why don't I let other people read them? So my first children's picture book is coming out in July, and it will be available for pre-order in about a month and a half. So I'll make sure to send you that information when it's there if your listeners are interested. But the name of the book is Chip the Cat Goes to Bat. It's about uh, it's a baseball-themed book, but it's also about going to bat for your friends and how to talk to bullies. So it has a nice message, and really one of the things that... I'd like to do through the books is tell stories about topics and issues that are facing the world today in a way that children can understand them and not just understand them, but that children can own them and then turn around and make a difference in their community. So I love telling stories like that. And so I'm really excited to have that coming in July. So look for Chip the Cat Goes to Bat in next month or two. And on July, you'll have that Joe, again, I'm so thankful that Sandy McKinney of Unity Christ Center here in Eau Claire connected me up with you. Of course, I'd met you in passing, but now I have a real sense of the power of the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for doing that work and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for having me, and thanks, everyone, for listening. I want to thank Andrew Jansen for helping out on production for today's program. Sandy McKinney, again, I thank you. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.